Let's go to the Lord once again this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, tomorrow we observe Memorial Day, and Lord, we just come today, and Lord, we thank you. We thank you and give you praise today, Lord, because of your wonderful blessings that you have poured out upon us. Not just personally, Lord, but as a nation over the ages. Lord, as we scan the globe and see other nations around the world where Christianity is, is in hiding, Christianity is under persecution, people are unable to proclaim their faith, unable to live out their faith openly in fear of death. Lord, we are thankful that we can gather here today as your people united. And we don't have to worry about the policemen coming in the doors and arresting us and carrying us off to jail. Lord, we thank you for a nation that we, we can freely worship you. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for taking that freedom for granted and for using that freedom as an opportunity to shrink away from the life that you have called us to for proclaiming your name. Lord, we thank you for the men and women who have gone on before us so many who have given their lives defending the freedoms that we have. Thank you, Lord, for their sacrifice. Now, Lord, today, as we come to this time of opening up your word, we worship, Lord, by sitting under the authority of your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord. Let your spirit fall upon us. Let us see your work clearly. And Lord, if there be one today who doesn't know Jesus, let him see the gift of salvation waiting for him in Christ our Lord. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me. To Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, continuing on in our study in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 21 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Now the question that I raised this morning is, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you sure that you are saved? Are you sure of your salvation you know, that is a, a question that is extremely important to each and every one of us and something that we should all, hopefully, that all of us have asked. And hopefully today you'll ask that again. My hope today is that you may leave here knowing the answer to that question, knowing for sure of your eternal destination. And today's text, we're going to see two qualities of a true Christian. 
two qualities of a true Christian. And these two qualities are going to point us to one central overarching truth. And that is this. A true Christian is defined by faith in Christ alone. A true Christian is defined by faith in Christ alone. A true Christian is defined by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, we are in the book of Galatians. We began this back a few weeks ago, and we're trudging our way through the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in Galatia, and they have been under attack by false teachers. False teachers have come in, and they're trying to pervert the gospel. And they're saying that the gospel is Jesus. Yes, they want to hold on to Jesus, but it's Jesus plus works of the Mosaic law. So Jesus plus keeping all of the Old Testament law, all the ceremonies, uh, men being circumcised, all of that. And so they say it's Jesus plus works of the law. And so Paul is pushing against that. He is combating that false teaching. And Paul first shows us, he showed us that we can trust his gospel, the gospel that he preached to the Galatians. He's he's defending the gospel he preached to them originally. And he's also setting the foundation for what we are getting to today as he presents the gospel and lays it all out. He's going to unfold it completely for us. And he's been, been defending that, that his gospel is truly not his gospel. It wasn't created by him. It wasn't a figment of his imagination, but it was indeed God's gospel given to him by a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we just finished up looking at his defense of his gospel, and, and he defended it by saying it was founded upon his conversion. His conversion was unique. He was going after Christians to arrest Christians, to put them in prison. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, if you will, in a moment, he met Jesus on the road and everything changed. And Paul the terrorist became Paul the evangelist, seeking to make converts for the name of Jesus. And then that was confirmed then, his gospel was further confirmed by the community, by the church, as he presented it to the other apostles. And then last week we looked at his courageous confrontation as he confronted Peter because Peter had had compromised the gospel. He had compromised the gospel and so Paul courageously confronted Peter. And we're really, this that we're looking at today, the passage that we're looking at today is kind of the tail end of that confrontation between Paul and Peter. And, And this is kind of the final thing that Paul confronted Peter with, but Paul is also using this as a transition into the letter, uh, and with this, he is, he's coming into the rest of the book. He's introducing, transitioning into the rest of the book and his argument throughout the rest of the book. And so today, we're, we're seeing two concerns. Paul, he's laying for us two concerns that he will work out in the rest of the book. Number one, how is one saved? How are we saved? How are we justified, as Jason said earlier? And second, how shall we live in light of that? 
How are we saved, and then how should we then live? So these are the two concerns that Paul is dealing with today. He's gonna, this is kind of his thesis statement for the rest of the book, for the rest of his argument. So this is kind of a summation of what he is going to break down in detail throughout the rest of the book. And so we're going to look at this this morning and look at these two concerns so, if you will, if you found your place there, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no, no purpose. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Well, this morning we see from our text two qualities of a true Christian. Two qualities of a true Christian. And the first quality that we see here is in that, those first two verses there, verses 15 through 16. A true Christian is justified by faith alone. A true Christian is justified by faith alone. Now we talk about this word justified or justification. Uh, that's a big word, a big theological term. And a lot of people would say, well, you don't need to talk about those big theological terms. Uh, people just don't connect with that. But we need to know this, church. We need to know what it means to be justified. We need to deal with that term. We need to put that term into our minds and hold on to it because it's, it's foundational to our salvation. We need to understand how we are saved and, and by what means we are saved. And to understand that, we need to understand this term justification or justified. Martin Luther said justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin likewise said justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which everything turns. This doctrine of justification is foundational. And it is very important, extremely important, that we understand the doctrine of justification. 
Now, we look at, our, at these first two verses here, and really what Paul does in these first two verses is he repeats himself three times. He says the same thing over three times, but he says it in a different way. He restates the, the, what he is saying there three different ways. And in what he is saying here, there's, there's four things that, that come out, four terms or four, four, four uh, little uh, phrases there that stand out in this, these two verses. And so we need to look at those four things, those four verses or those four phrases that we see so predominant here in these two verses. First of all is that term justified. It is the term justified or justification. Justification. Look there again. Uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now remember, he's talking to Peter here. And what he is saying, we are Jews. We have been blessed by God, unlike the Gentiles, to have the law. God has given the people of Israel the Mosaic law, and we have been blessed by that. He's not degrading the Gentiles here, but they haven't had the law. But he's saying to Peter, we are Jews by birth. We have the law. And we're not Gentile sinners. They didn't have the law. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We look at that word justified, or the term justification. What does justification mean? Justification is a legal term. It has connotations to a court of law. And we know that through Scripture, Scripture tells us that there is coming a day of judgment, a day when every person, every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will stand before God in judgment. He will be upon His throne, and we will stand before Him, and He will judge us. Revelation chapter 20 tells us this. It gives us a picture of that, that future event that will take place. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, Scripture reads, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. For his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's books, and then there's the book. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, the books. And what was in those books? They were judged in, by what was in, written in the books according to what they had done. So that book that Jason had earlier, that's the books of a person's works throughout their lives. And so the dead will be judged by what they had done in their lives. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then Hades and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there we have this future event that's going to take place. You can mark it down. It's in God's Word. It's going to take place. And there will be a day that each one of us will stand before God's throne of judgment. 
And we will either be judged by books, the books of our lives, the volumes that we fill with all of our daily activities, with all our actions, everything that we do, they will be opened up and they will be uh, proclaimed there in that courtroom. And we will either be judged by the books or we will be judged by the book, the book of life. And so when we stand there, there will be those whom God says he will look at the books of their life and he will say, condemned, condemned, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. The other judgment that will come down from God is justified, justified. You are righteous in my sight. Come into my eternal kingdom. So those are the only two options. There's no middle ground here. It will, we will either hear the gavel drop condemned or justified. So what does it mean to be justified? Well, justification there, again, is a legal declaration. It's a legal declaration of righteousness. A legal declaration of righteousness. Now, that's another big term that we don't t typically use. What does it mean? Uh, what does righteousness mean? That means that, we will, that he is declaring us morally upright before him. We are morally upright. To be righteous, to be purely righteous, is to have kept all of God's laws, to keep all of his commandments perfectly, lived our life completely and totally in obedience to God's will. That's what it takes to be justified. To be justified, to be declared righteous, we have to have perfect obedience, Perfect moral obedience to the Word of God and to the law of God. It is an acquittal to be justified, to have that, uh, that pronouncement upon us in our case. It's not only a legal declaration of righteousness, but it's also an acquittal because we know that we are not righteous. There's not a soul who has ever lived who is righteous before God on their own merit. That's why we can't stand before God if we are judged by the books of our lives. We will never live up to the standard of God. We are sinners. We are enslaved to sin. By our very nature, we rebel against God. We run away from God. So there's no hope for us to be justified on our own righteousness, but God declaring us justified, He acquits us. That is, He forgives us. Now, you've probably heard it said, uh, justified means it's, it's like just as if I had never sinned. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That's a wonderfully quip, uh, quip uh, phrase, but it's not quite accurate. It's not quite accurate because to be just as if I had never sinned would be to declare us innocent. But God can't declare us innocent. We are guilty. But he declares us forgiven. He declares us forgiven. We are forgiven in His sight. And it's not mere forgiveness. 
God is a righteous judge. He is completely righteous. And because he is completely righteous, he can't just simply pass over our sin. He can't just simply declare us righteous and kind of just turn a blind eye to our sin. Something has to happen. Someone has to pay the penalty for our sin and our rebellion against God. But we want on that day to be declared justified. So then, how then are we justified? How is one then justified? He tells us here in this passage, first of all, it's not by works. It is not by works of the law. He says that over and over and over again. Not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works of law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No human being, no uh, person born into sin will ever be justified by works of the law. It is impossible for us to be justified by works of the law. Oh, we might can get along here and there. We might can point to uh, events in our lives. Oh, see, Lord, where I, I refused, I, I resisted that temptation, and I, I did good, right? Didn't I, Lord? But then there's hundreds and thousands of other instances where we fail. And if we fail in one word of the law, guess what? We're guilty of the whole bunch. We stand condemned. We are guilty before God, and we deserve His eternal punishment for our sin. A righteous God demands righteous justice, right? He demands justice. And so we cannot stand justified before God by works of the law because we fail in that. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that the, the law was not given for that purpose. The law was not given by God for that purpose so that we might be justified by the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since, because, through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, dear friend, that's what the law is for. The law tells us not to covet, and yet we see covetousness in our lives. The law says don't, don't lie, yet we see ourselves lying. The law says don't commit adultery, yet in our minds, even though we might not commit adultery physically, in our minds we commit adultery. The law tells us do, do not uh, exalt idols, do not worship idols, yet we go out and we put things in, pl in the place of God over and over and over again. As Calvin says, the heart is a factory of idolatry. We make idols out of everything. So we cannot be justified by works of the law because we cannot keep the law perfectly. So then how is one justified? By faith. By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. He says that over three times there but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed. That's the same word there in the, in the Greek. It's the same root word. It, it's faith. We have had faith, in other words, what he's saying, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. The way that we are justified in the sight of God is not by works of the law, but by faith. Now, what does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean to have faith? Faith. What is faith? 
I mean, we use that so much in our day and our time. A lot of people talk about having faith. What does it mean to have faith? Faith is believing. But it's not mere belief, right? You see, a lot of people believe that Jesus was a man. A lot of people would even say they believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And he died on the cross for sinners. And many would say, even say that, we, I believe that he was raised again. But will that kind of faith to save? No, because even the demons believe that. They know those facts. They believe those facts, but they're not saved. So what is faith? What is faith? Faith is trusting. It's trusting. It's trusting in the work that Jesus did on your behalf. It's trusting in him. It's putting all of your, your hope in him. Right? So you think about this chair here. Give this example, this chair. I can believe all day long that that chair will hold me up. But me just standing here saying, I believe that chair will hold me up, I'm not really trusting in the chair, am I? No, to believe in it, to have faith in the chair, I have to turn around and sit down in the chair. You see, that's faith. It's trusting that Jesus has you, that he has done what he says he has done. He has accomplished what he says he has accomplished. It's trusting in him. It's believing in him. That's faith. So we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith. Now, we need to make sure that we don't fall into a trap here because many Christians today, they fall into the trap of making faith a work. Right? They make faith a work. So they make faith about all kinds of things. It's about walking an aisle. It's about praying a certain prayer. It's about this. It's about that. And faith then becomes a work of the law. But it's not a work of the law. Faith is faith. It's simple. It's just trusting in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This faith isn't even in your own doing, but it is a work of God. It's a gift of God. I love what Jesus tells to, to Simon Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon stood up uh, as the spokesman for the rest of the bunch and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, oh, and right you are. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Faith, even as a gift of God. We can never believe, we can never see Jesus unless God opens our eyes to see Jesus. We can never open our hearts to God unless God puts into our, our heart a, a heart of flesh to believe. We are, it is by faith, and even this faith is a wonderful grace of God. So we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith, and in faith in whom or what? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to have faith in Christ? It is to trust in the work, the person and the work of Jesus. That is so important. We need to see that there's two sides of this. As we believe in Jesus, as we trust in Jesus, there's, there's two works that, that take place here that we need to, to trust in. First of all, we, we trust Him. We have faith in Christ's substitutionary atonement. Another big word, I'm sorry. 
We believe and we trust in Christ's substitutionary atonement. Yes, you need to learn that word too. Substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? What does that mean? God cannot just simply pass over our sin. You remember me saying? God can't just turn a blind eye to our sin. Sin. He can't just pronounce us innocent and that be the end of it. Someone's got to pay. Someone has to take on the responsibility. Someone has to receive the wage for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to receive that wage. Someone has to pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus becomes our substitute, substitutionary. He becomes our substitute. Instead of God pouring out his wrath upon us for our disobedience, for our sin, for our rebellion, God poured out his wrath and his judgment upon Jesus. When he was there on the cross, he was our substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. He received the penalty for sin in our place. Now, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of, a lot of preachers out there who will say, oh, no, that's not correct, that Jesus wasn't a substitute. That's a pagan thought. Let me tell you, that's scriptural. That's biblical. Jesus died for our sins as according to Scripture, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It is a fact. He died in our place. It was necessary that the Son of God go to Calvary's cross and receive the just penalty for our sin upon himself. We are justified by Christ's substitutionary atonement. And second, we are justified by faith in Christ's imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness, it just means Christ's added righteousness. It has been imputed to our account. It's been added to our account. You see, it's not just enough that God, God forgive us for our sins. There has to be a positive righteousness there. There has to be positive acts of obedience in our account. And so what does God do by declaring us justified? He, he allows Christ to be our substitute, but also he imputes Christ's life of obedience. Right? Christ lived 33 years, around about 33 years on this earth, and he lived a life as a man. He lived a life in complete obedience to the will of God. That's why it was important that Jesus die at 33 and not at 2. Because he had to have a life of positive obedience, a life of living in obedience to the will of God to add to our account, or else what, what good would that do us? So we trust in God. We are justified by faith in Jesus and what he accomplished for us. In his life, living a life of perfect obedience in our place, and in his death, receiving the penalty for our sin in our place. So a true Christian is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Pioneers of the Great Plains protected their settlements from oncoming prairie fires by burning the grass around their homes and their settlements. You know why? Because the flames pose no danger to an area that's already been burned. You know, the safest place to be when God pours out his fiery wrath and judgment upon this earth is to be in the one place that the wrath has already been poured out, and that's at the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friend, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone because of what he did throughout his life 
to win us righteousness, to gain our righteousness, and for what he did on Calvary's cross, receiving the penalty for our sin and our rebellion. Oh, a true Christian is not justified by anything, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. How are you tonight? Or how are you today? How is your heart? Do you trust in Jesus? Or are you trusting in something else? Are you like these, these Pharisees and these Judaizers, hoping and trusting in, in what you can do for God? Or are you trusting in what Christ has already accomplished on your behalf? So the first quality of a true Christian is a true Christian is justified by faith alone. Paul now anticipates an objection. If justification then is by faith alone, then won't this lead to antinomianism? Won't this lead to just living a life open and free of the law, uh, living a life in rebellion? Won't it raise the, the rebellion even more? Won't people just live, you know, eat, drink, and, and be merry? Won't, won't that attitude take over the church? And Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not, because the second quality of a true Christian is this. A true Christian lives to God by faith alone. A true Christian lives to God by faith alone. We need to understand the reality for the Christian. We need to understand what it means to, to be justified by faith, what that does to the Christian life. It changes our reality. It changes our view of life. He covers that in this second section, verses 17 through 21. Well, 17 through 20 specifically. But if in an endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild while I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to understand, we need to see the reality for the Christian in this text, the new reality for a Christian in this text. First of all, we notice here what Paul says, I have died. I have died. An emphasis on the I. I have died. Paul says, I have died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have died. You know, dear friend, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we are justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus, a new reality sets in. A new reality sets in. We are no longer ourselves, but we are dead. That old self has died. Paul says it's like this. The union with Christ is such as this, that it's like we died with Christ on Calvary's cross. We were crucified with him. We are no longer alive. The I in us is no longer alive. We are dead to sin. 
That is, we are dead to the penalty of sin. That's what it means to be justified. The penalty has been taken care of by Jesus. We are dead to the power and the dominion of sin. Sin no longer rules and reigns over us, but God has made it such that he has freed us from the bondage of sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, but God has made us alive together in Christ. There's a new reality. We are dead. The old self is dead. The self that was enslaved to sin is dead. We are dead to sin. Furthermore, we are dead to self. We are dead to self. He emphasizes this over and over again. I, I, that Greek word is ego. I, it's where we get our word ego. I have died. Myself has died. Paul says, I put myself upon the cross. I'm no longer a slave to even myself. I am dead to selfishness. I am dead to self-saving. I am dead to self-reliance. I is no more. It's only Jesus. I is dead. When we come to Christ by God's grace through faith, I is dead. You get that? There's a lot of people who don't believe that. There's a lot of people out there who say, well, I said a prayer. I did this or that other thing in Bible school, yet their whole life, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. They're still living for self. They're not living for Christ. They're living for self. They're doing their own thing. They're self-reliant. They're selfish and self-centered. Nothing has changed. They're not justified by God's grace through faith. Because when one is justified by grace through faith, I dies. Not only is I dead, I have died, but another reality is in effect here, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. That is, Christ now dwells in me. We see the indwelling of Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in me. Focus on the in. He is in me. He is in me. Something has changed. There's a new reality within us. Now it's not that old dead self, that old dead heart, but now the Spirit is in there. The Spirit of Christ is in us. He is within us. He is living inside us. He is indwelling us. Not only that, but Christ transforms us. Christ lives in me. He lives. He is not just sitting back on the couch. He is not just sitting there doing nothing, twiddling his thumbs. Christ is in us, and he is living in us. He is doing something in us. He is there to change us and transform us. He is not just there to do nothing. He is not there to do nothing. But he is in us, living, changing us. Think about it like this. I started to, to get this as an illustration, but I was afraid I would spill it on the carpet, so I didn't. So just imagine, I've got two containers. They're clear containers, right? And in this one, I have grape juice, and in this one, I have water. Now, this is pure water, and this is pure grape juice over here. Now, what happens when I pour one into the other? The substance has changed. It's no longer the same. It's a new substance. The same thing happens in the life of a Christian. 
When we come to faith in Jesus, a new reality sets in. The, the Holy Spirit moves in us. He is poured in us. The old nature has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a new reality, a new nature. Now, I understand that that analogy breaks down a little bit because in that analogy, both, both substances change, but God is unchanging. He is immutable. He is unchanging. So when we pour the immutable into the mutable, guess what? The immutable stays un immutable. He stays unchanged. But that which is mutable, us, that which has the ability to change, us, it changes. We have no option but to change. We must change. God cannot be in us and we not change. There must be change. There must be transformation. Now, I understand that it's going, to, it's going to come more in effect for some. It's going to come faster. There's going to be those who excel and, and are way up here rather rapidly. And then there's some that we're going to just kind of, we're going to go like this. We're going to kind of take the slow road, and we're going to get there. It's a progressiveness that takes place. Sanctification is a progressive thing. This thing uh, becoming holy is a progressive thing. And it's different from everybody. But let me say this. Let me guarantee you this. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to go up in holiness. You are going to raise up in holiness. Whether it's, it's a, a, a pretty good spike there or if it's kind of a, a, a low hum, right? If it's just slow. But there's going to be change. There's going to be difference. There's going to be progressive, progression in holiness. If there's no progression, if you come to faith here, and 10 years later, you're still here on that same level, you're not saved. You're living a lie. If God is in you, He's changing you. And you need to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus and trust in Him. That is the hope for you. Dear friend, if you've lived a life as a professing Christian, but you can look at the line of your life and there is no change whatsoever. You're still the same person you ever was. There's no growth in holiness whatsoever. Repent and trust in Jesus today. That is your only hope. Paul says this, these are two realities that are true for every Christian. A true Christian is justified by faith alone. And a true Christian lives to God by faith alone. The Spirit is working in us. It's not us. It's not us who's changing us. But it's God who's changing us. We live to God by faith alone. Are you fundamentally different because of the indwelling Spirit of Christ in your life? Has anything changed? Ask yourself this this morning. So as Paul unfolds all this, and he's going to get in more depth as he continues through, but we end with this question, what is at stake here? What is at stake here? If we compromise these two qualities of a Christian and say, add something else to it, what is at stake here? It's the gospel. The gospel is at stake. If we compromise these two key principles, the gospel is at stake. R.C. Sproul says, Without the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the gospel is not merely compromised, it is lost. 
Notice what Paul says in the last verse. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were through the law, if it were through anything else, then Christ died for no purpose. A true Christian, a true Christian is defined by faith in Christ alone, period, nothing else. A true Christian is justified by faith alone, and a true Christian lives to God by faith alone. Ephraim, where are you today? Are you justified in Christ? Maybe you've just been living a, a lie, but today God has spoken to your heart, and you realize that you are in need of salvation. You're in need of justification. Let today be the day that you turn away from your rebellion, turn away from self-reliance, turn away from selfishness, turn away from relying on self, and turn to Jesus. Trust in Him and what He has done on your account, and you will be justified in the sight of God. And the Holy Spirit will move into your life and He will absolutely, positively change you. He will give you the power to live a life for God's glory. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray today for these. Lord, I pray that each one would be justified. But yet, Lord, even looking at the numbers here today, there's a great chance that there's someone here who does not have faith in Jesus, not true faith. Lord, let today be the day that they turn away from self-reliance, trying to do it on their own, and turn to Jesus. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.